It's not a problem, I'll find my way out. At the beginning of uh, this uh, conference, the gold price was so high, I didn't dare to use a, a bar of gold as a picture. So instead I used a gold fish instead, it was a bit cheaper. Um, in the meantime, uh, I, I believe gold has come down a bit. That as a way of introduction. Um, but what I'll be doing is visualizing the the quite abstract theory and I'll put a picture to it. Uh, if you're interested in getting the slides I will send them to you. Um, if you give me your email address I'll make a PDF print out of this. I'll try to actually recover the full version. And uh, in the meantime we'll get along with uh, the new presentation. Now what we've seen so far in fact, are the sources of interest. We have covered the phenomenons of hoarding and this hoarding, which come into the picture when discussing um, interest. We have, we have discussed the phenomenon of marginal hoarding. We have also seen something about marketability and saleability of, uh, of goods and very importantly the marginal utility of gold and silver that fit in with this marketability and saleability. Further we also discussed this uh, the propensity to hoard and what effect it has on interest rates and how we can reduce this phenomenon of interest to its irreducible form of credit. Now, um, Peter, yes. What do you mean by that last point? I'll I'll come to that. Let me start from the top because I'll take you again through what we've seen. I don't have notes on uh, this backup. Let me see if I can back up here as well. And I'm looking for a chart. And you know what? I'll make a new one. I'll just make a new one here. When speaking about utility, we are talking abstract about something that is only ordinal, not cardinal. You cannot put figures to that, one, two, three, no, no. You rank them. That is what we've seen in the beginning. You cannot make it a continuous function. It is always discrete. So. In coming to this irreducible form of credit, we have to go through hoarding and this hoarding. We have spoken about the annuitant with a D and a T, how they can in fact save, work and save a little bit, and then later on while they're old enough, this hoard whatever they have saved. 
at a certain rate and hope that it's enough. We've also seen later on that you can improve that process by using, let's say, the vertical division, the horizontal division of labor, which cannot be used without a certain remuneration. These people are in fact looking for an income in exchange for future wealth. Everything is an exchange process as we've seen. Now, what we've also seen is the marginal utility of normal commodities, let's say grains or perishables of beans, how many bags of beans can you store, or are you willing to store well as a function of quantity um, and here we express marginal utility. We should be making points, we shouldn't be making um, a line. You know, uh, but we're not going to make it too difficult yet. And you can see that after a certain number of beans, you've had enough and it goes negative. It, to you, it's not important anymore. However, if you find that other commodity that other people are looking for, which doesn't perish, and of which you don't say after a point, well, I've had enough, we've come to the conclusion that gold and silver are, for all intents and purposes, not declining that fast. Of course, they are declining. And again, we should be saying, this is ordinal, we should rank it. It's in fact points, discrete points. But let's not nitpick about this. Silver would be below here and gold a bit higher because it is um, slightly more horrible and this is more sa silver is more saleable. That far, everybody has followed, I think. Um, but of course, before they drop to zero, we are way off chart. And you can see that for all intents and purposes, this is going to be constant. Now, of course, imagine you can meet us. At one stage, you have all the gold. Then your marginal utility is probably there. You are the only person to have all the gold in the world and nobody else has. Well, then you have no use for any other unit of gold. Uh, but, you know, you're living in an imaginary world. It's never going to happen. What else should we say here? Marketability, saleability? Well, of course, we have seen a chart of a diagonal price quantity um, equilibrium. Well, everybody's aware of how that looks. I'll make just a small one here. Uh, it looks like this. Uh, and you express pricing quantity and equilibrium is so-called at the intersection. Now, that may go for very simple things. We're not going to discuss that very much, but in most um, processes, it's a process of conversions. And here we see that the um, Mengerian approach of this equilibrium would be a lot more um, in, insightful, let's say. Once again, we have a number of quantities and this will be an abstract price, but you always have the higher ask 
and the lower bid. And it's always like that. Don't make it like the bid is higher than the ask. It's never, I mean, you can if you are uh, a lunatic. But let's speak about normal people. We have seen that this is the commercial range. The commercial range being defined as the price at which both uh, people who are or both roles, the ask and the bid role, uh, or, or, or the, the offer and the seller, can actually, for any quantity within the commercial range, get along without haggling. He doesn't have to haggle, and this one neither. But of course, outside of this commercial range, prices diverge, and you have to maybe haggle. We've also seen, now this is maybe uh, material from, um, from last year, in, in, in was it Budapest or was it? Zombate. Uh, yes. What determines the upper limit here of the ask and of the bid? Well, the, who is in charge here? What determines the upper limit is the outcome of the marginal Anyone? Marginal buyer, the bidder. And inversely, well, do I need to explain that? Or um, is anybody with me? I mean, this, let me just in the, in the three seconds. If price goes up, the purchaser of whatever commodity uh, is on offer here, and the price at the next uptick, he says, "Well, uh, sorry, I'm out. I'm going somewhere else." So that's the marginal buyer, and that, that's when that's when he decides he he's no longer interested. So that will be the last price uptick. And of course, on the other side, the uh, that's a different process, by the way, because this uh, this person here has the ability to do some horizontal arbitrage. He goes elsewhere. The bid price. Funnily enough, is determined by the no, no, producers. Eh? Sorry. Marginal seller. Yes, the marginal seller, which is the producer of whatever is on sale here, and he can say, "Well, if price is this, uh, forget it. I'll, I'm not in." So this is the outcome of the sellers, and they have also some arbitrage to do. So that was, in a nutshell, something of last year. You can apply this to uh, interest rates as well, we've seen, uh, in the case on, uh, of, of, of a, on a, under a gold standard, this would be uh, a lot more complicated because there's a little bit more to it. And we'll go through that uh, as well because then we arrive at um, The, the propensity to hold, because we have to explain still, and we've seen that here, that uh, even if you are under a gold standard, people still save some money in gold. So if your marginal utility of gold is constant, why do you still want more? Because you can get everything you want. You know, why still save? What is the limit there to saving? And we've seen, we've come to the conclusion that it must be something else than marginal utility because, I mean, if it is marginal utility, then it would be infinite. I mean, I would be saving as much as I can. And as much as I can carry, that may be limited to whatever 
you know, how much can you carry in gold? 50, 60 kilos, but not 20, 200 tons. So um, something is stopping that, and we've seen, or we have to come to the conclusion that even under a gold standard, people do save, but not to infinity. So it must be something else that limits that, and that is interest. Interest, of course, payable in gold. And interest is not payable under a gold standard in little notes, because that would be, indeed, as the professor says, a cruel joke. And in coming to the um, hexagonal model, we have to um, accept that there is a propensity to hoard gold, other stuff, but with a limit, and that it would be the interest rate, and that is, when you speak about interest rates, we've seen also that that is linked to, well, trust somehow. You need to trust other people. They put their signature under a little piece of paper that says, okay, I am liable to you to pay you every year this much. You need to trust that person. If you can trust that person, you, well, are you loaning him something? Probably you are. You want your capital back plus a bit of interest. You trusting that person, that trust, you can call just as well credit. You give him credit for that, and for such an amount. And that would be the entrepreneur. We have briefly discussed that uh, this model of lenders of funds and borrowers of funds is in fact totally inadequate because there's much more roles involved than just lending and borrowing. Uh, lending and borrowing can be found uh, way back, I mean if you look at Roman law, these, the Romans had laws against usually but also for lending. If you borrow a ladder from your neighbor, you return that ladder. Preferably in good condition. And if you borrow money, you are entitled to get that. Well, if you lend money, you're entitled from the borrower to get that money back. Even in the time of King Hammurabi, 2,500 years in the Sumerian laws, you still find laws that treat lending and borrowing. So lending and borrowing is something that is human. As long as there's peace and confidence, you can borrow something, you can lend something as long as you give it back. So that is quite natural, a quite natural process, but it's not explained by a diagonal model at all. So we've come to this um, construction of the square model. Now, um, the professor has made a drawing here, and I'm going to redo that on the big screen. There are four corners, um, one with the Inuitant, with a D, the one with a T. Now you may notice that I have turned a little bit because I didn't put them here on the left hand side. I just little, I turned a little bit, there is a reason for that, because later on I'm going to put an axis on this and this will be my time axis. Here, my time axis was here. I find it for myself a bit more, you know, that's, that's quite personal, it's, it's, 
just so that you understand. But you cannot um, replace, um, for instance, the annuity and put them here at any corner. You, you can't do that, huh? Please do that. Please not. Huh? You have to put them here next to each other. We have also seen there is an entrepreneur and there is an inventor. And you have to put them in this order. The annuitant with the inventor, this is the older person and you have to put him together with the entrepreneur because they form partnerships, they form partnerships, you can form a partnership this way, that way and you could form cross partnerships too. Now, let me sit down so you can all see what is the role here. The annuitant with a D is a younger person, he's got lots of energy still, so he's long income. He can produce a little bit more surplus for himself. He's long income, present income, but he's short a bit of future wealth. He needs, he would like to get future wealth, get as wealthy as his grandfather and preferably even faster than his grandfather. So he's short future wealth. Grandfather, on the other hand, uh, he is short of income. He's got enough wealth. So he needs to convert the process. We have seen that it is the conversion process that is crucial in uh, this whole story. And not just price and quantity uh, equilibrium. That is insufficient to explain things. The role of the inventor is slightly different. What is his position, well, uh, he needs income. He's short, no, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry, uh, he, he needs present income. And what is he long of? He's long future wealth. The entrepreneur needs wealth in order to convert that to income. It will be future income. Whereas here on this axis we see present wealth and there is future wealth. We've also seen, uh, is, is everybody still with me? Yes? Uh, you, you get copies of this. Okay, no questions here so far? So far so good. So far so good, excellent. The partnerships. This is a partnership to form future wealth. It's called the partnership to form R&D. And on the other hand, that would be a partnership to form capital. Now, um, this is where I don't know what my slides will do. Okay, I have an idea. You can divide that. You know, these are just roles. On the left-hand side, this partnership on the right-hand side, that partnership, as I've just uh, explained, um, you can still divide it up. In two um, other partnerships, let's see what the next slice is now. What have we got here? The both the annuitant of the time axis and the older and the, the younger person, they form a partnership to supply credit. If they go into an agreement, they find each other. Huh? This is uh, grandfather and this is father. That's son. 
possibly. But they can exchange, they can enter into an exchange, possibly even at zero credit, because grandfather can say, well, I'm sick and tired of this bakery. I'm too old to get up at two o'clock in the morning. You do it. You can use my capital equipment, which means here we have an exchange of wealth. But then you go ahead and do the bakery at two o'clock in the morning so I can go to sleep and watch television at night, whatever he wants to do. So he uses the equipment of his uh, father or grandfather. So there's an exchange here. You can, you can do this. You can see that. An exchange of, of uh, um, wealth and income. As it, as, it, as it was described. But this is also a partnership to supply credit because grandfather gets credit that he, uh, I mean, he leaves his bakery to his, to his son. And his son is, and that, that son has children and, and they may be employed as, as a, uh, inventors or entrepreneurs or whatever, you know. What other partnership is there? Well, there's a partnership to utilize this credit. Okay, now before you say, Peter, this is, this is the same thing as, as, as this, you know. of credit and usability of credit? Yes, I agree. But where is the exchange of wealth? That is visible here. The exchange of wealth and income is visible on this chart, on this model, where it is not visible on this simple model. Uh, that is the point that was uh, made. And of course we have um, a line, I've drawn a line here so you can see that there is a difference. There's many forms uh, and partnerships that you can make. We've also seen there is an improvement possible with uh, the addition of the capitalist in the pentagonal model. Once again, we start from the square model we start there and now I've drawn two arrows so you can see that the other people can also have partnerships with each other in the understanding that these are direct partnerships of course you have to find your partner what was explicitly said also is that the bargaining position of these people is asymmetric and that becomes very clear when I draw an axis with interest on that side because in the absence of any interest or call that a remuneration for their effort both the entrepreneur and the inventor will be out of work they cannot convert without credit any income into future wealth. They need credit, they need that, absolutely. Which makes this partnership dominant because they can set the interest rates, if you like. Except if we enter the capitalist. Because what does he do? He improves the process. He's a go-between. And I've put him 
on this side instead of on the other model um, that the professor has drawn. Now it's just it's not saying that you are wrong. Um, I've just preferred a different position. Um, the capitalists in in this picture that you've drawn yesterday uh, was drawn here on the side of the annuitant. It well, this partnership has capital, obviously. I've drawn it. I've drawn the capitalist above here, and the reason why I've done that is is uh, that he is the inventor and the entrepreneur along future wealth and short income, and so it's, well, the capitalist is in fact also long future wealth. He doesn't need necessarily short of, 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 of income, I wouldn't say that, but he's long future wealth. So that's my interpretation. Um, it's not wrong to put him here either, because he's also long capital. <coughs> Just a matter of convenience, because I'm, uh, with my slide I have to arrive at um, something else now. <laughs> it's good, I've got your attention. That's <laughs> Why is the capitalist so important? Well, he reduces the, the rate of interest to the lowest possible level. He finds, he's, he's in fact a specialist. And he says, it, well, it's, he's breaking the monopoly and reducing the interest rates. Why is that? Well, the troika of the inventor, the capitalist, and the entrepreneur can now better bargain. In fact, if you cannot find a partnership directly between entrepreneur and annuitant or inventor and annuitant, the capitalist has a role for that marginal inventor or entrepreneur who just missed his chance to find a partner. The capitalist will enter. On his books are lots of annuitants who have also missed their chance to find and to team up with an entrepreneur and he will match them as far as possible. So those inventors and those um, role models here who have missed their chance are now given a chance exactly by the capitalists. So it's positive and it is a positive role instead of what you sometimes read in literature, especially social literature, you know, the role of capitalists is a dirty role. Uh, look, at, look at, well, I'll give you an example. Um, Keynes wrote his general theory of interests and what was it? And labor. If you look that up, if you ever bothered to read Keynes, just look for the chapter on interest and have a good laugh. Because he describes interest formation, well, he doesn't even describe it very well, but he just plays down the role of the capitalist as a coupon clipper, as a rentier, somebody he was parasitical, he just never wants to work. Okay, but you know, that's déjà vu, that is, you know, that's a chapter that was, that he's taken over from Marxist literature from, from 50 years before, probably. Nothing new. And in fact, it's surprising that he didn't have any of his own um, ideas there. Um, we need still to arrive at the uh, sixth protagonist, which would be the investment banker. 
that would complete our model because without him there's still something missing and I put him here with the annuitant because now this investment banker may be a conglomerate of a few capitalists but also um, a number maybe 200, 300 annuitants who buy shares in this company you know? so this investment banker is just a role and he is prepared to take on each and every corner and he's the matchmaker he's got to match duration and specialty and productivity if this one wants three and a half and another one wants three and a quarter well he's going to matchmake them so the roles are still improved okay now uh, due to time concerns and the time that we have a bit uh, lost in the beginning I'm going to go a bit faster you have all seen this yesterday so my visualization of the hexagonal model is as in yesterday but please allow me to make one personal um, improvement and that would be this on the other slides it's uh, uh, even better explained because on the other slides I've drawn a triangle between this troika and also this troika we have two of them so this you can imagine there are two uh, triangles so they come from here and, then, and I've moved them down why? because we have a ceiling and a floor rate of interest and that process of formation of interest we, we know, we've seen it's not a matter of demand and supply but it's something else that determines this right? What determines that? Well, the ceiling is determined by the marginal productivity of capital. Those who've been to uh, Zombate two, two or three years ago remember this because we have seen this. Um, why is it that the marginal productivity of capital determines the ceiling anybody yes Keith. you can't borrow money at 10% in order to make a 9% profit <laughs> yes that too but of course it's, it would be a, a definition uh, of the marginal uh, well, so product, the, mar the marginal, the marginal profit is 9% yeah. so you cannot that person draws his uh, there. Yes. At that point. Now I must admit in my other notes uh, that have disappeared, I have written it down, in, uh, which I copied from the professor's notes, and it's nicely there. Um, I'm going to have to explain this in my own words, and Keith has mentioned it already. There is a ceiling to this 
rate of interest. Now, we've, I've just mentioned here that the capitalist brings this down as much as he can, this interest rate, because he is now a go-between. He can bring down the rates. There is now a bit of competition. He brings in all the partners. Interest rates are down. Why, why does it... Why, why is the capitalist here whilst the floor is there? Can you see there's an inverse role here? Just as here, by the way, in the other chart. You cannot... Uh, you have to see, in fact, um, a bit more of, of the... Um, of the lectures before we arrive there, so... Um, Maybe I should, I'm going to skip this because the professor will actually go, this, go through this in detail, detail I think, still. Uh, aren't you going to? Yes, sir. And due to time concerns, we've only got 10 minutes left. I'm going to um, come back to this um, after the, um, the coffee break. And we'll, we'll see this again in, in uh, complete detail, but I'm going to finish um, this model here. The floor rate of interest is under a gold standard that is determined by the time preference. Not the liquidity preference, time preference. And it's dominant. It's a dominant rate. It will not be broken down. And this, there's a specific reason for that because these savers, the people who put in money and saved it with the investment banker, are perfectly able to see when, okay, this interest rate is too low, fine, thank you very much, I'm withdrawing my money from the bank, this is, this is no good to me, I want a high interest, I can't get it from him, will withdraw, he will in fact do some arbitrage between the cash and the gold bond market. So from the gold bond market, all those participants here, note, not a single um, government employee determines this rate. If the rate goes too low, they just walk away. They let their feet do the walking and the talking. If the rate needs to go up, then the bankers will have to decide, well, maybe the offered rate is a bit, you know, we need to hire this up, otherwise we will not be able to attract money. That's why this time preference is dominant. That one isn't. The marginal productivity of capital, that is, is in fact quite another chapter all by itself. But you can see that when bonds, when the entrepreneur here sees that he has in fact a capital structure and it returns to him 15%. And the rate of interest goes higher than 15%. Why is that a ceiling? Well, the entrepreneur says, well, why should I get gray hair and get tired? I can just as well go to the bond market and go elsewhere instead of doing this whole entrepreneurship. So he gets out of the bond, sells his bond. Is that clear? No, he buys the bonds, he sells his, he sells his own company, right? Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Yes, you're right. He, he's, he's buying... He's doing some arbitrage between his own company and another market which pays more than what he gets here. So he's out. Of, you know, he says, well, I've had enough. At this rate, I can just as well 
do something else because I'm out. That's why this is the scene. And this is the floor, this one is done. Any questions so far? I just want to throw a comment. That is a sure. nice model. Yeah. Uh, you can see that the investment banker lowers the floor because if he wasn't there, it would take more interest to do this. And same thing with the capitalist. So overall, the whole efficiency of the economy increases. And businesses that could not be viable before that don't earn enough interest, enough return to get up there, because those two lines are lower, they come into play. Yes. So it's, uh, yeah, it's nice. I've mentioned yesterday um, the name of um, a traditional economic, economic economist by the name of Pareto, in English maybe pronounced Pareto. I think he was Italian, wasn't he? No? Yes. He was Italian. So what would the Italians call him? Pareto. Pareto. But he's, he's a classical um, economist with an equilibrium uh, history. So um, he, he tried to define what is optimal. And optimal in his eyes would be, okay, without, without defrauding anybody and without taking anything from anybody else, we can still optimize this process. Now, okay, he didn't mean this process because he was looking at an equilibrium process. Um, but the hexagonal model shows a lot of implications. It shows a lot more than just who is the protagonist and who's determining what here. Um, the hexagonal model shows that optimal efficiency in our world can be achieved if everybody's role is well known. Yes, the investment banker has a role. Um, and certain laws need to control that a little bit. We have said yesterday why that is, because you have to distinguish between commercial banking, which is in the short market, and they can have in their asset portfolio probably a lot of real bills, 90 days maturity maximum. That's not the same as the investment banker. He's not interested in 90 day bills, that's too short. I mean, he's a, more, he's a mortgage broker, 30 years from now. So is long future wealth. <coughs> you see? And he's matchmaking that with somebody who's short. And he by um, arbitrage, he, and, and I didn't say speculation, eh? by putting himself between the offers and the sellers, and he buys at the lowest offer and sells at the highest bid, he can make for himself an income. Do you see that? That arbitrage is an income and not speculation? Because under, uh, this is under a gold standard. Now, I have to admit that in my other slides I have swapped these uh, to give you an example of what happens under a uh, irredeemable currency. We only have uh, three, four minutes. But the irredeemable currency we'll see after the coffee break, and there's lots of things wrong with that. I will just want to end here that, of course, on this graph, which is my personal interpretation, I've put here the time, because there is a time preference, I've put here a rate of interest, but you could, I think, put also 
some kind of measure of productivity with a limit, because productivity is not limitless, neither is time. For humans, that is. Time is limited in itself. So there is a limit to ceiling and floor interest rates, there's a limit to productivity as well. Um, one more little comment is this. If the spread between these rates is high or widens, that's a sign of something, something is not kosher. It means there may be a lot of obligations or, or, or bonds coming into the market which are substandard. It also means that uh, there is somebody, something hampering the process of arbitrage. Most of the time it would happen on the taxation side. Because if you tax people, they have less income, which is this side. They have less income disposable. So taxing them would hamper the process of finding partnerships between inventor and annuitant. Because you're taking the excess income and, in, and taxing it and spending it. That's the government's role. Oh, mind you, when that is not enough, they go on to capital gains taxation <laughs> and withholding tax. And when that is not enough, they have another taxation called VAT. Or estate tax. And estate taxes. So I mean, the process is obviously hampered, which you can see from this model, not from an equilibrium model. Because then you need to draw all sorts of funny lines, which we're not going to do. But as you can see, the role of taxation is visible here. You're hampering the process, you're widening the spread. And I think that is all time we have for now. Yes, really, one question. Uh, just the left line that I call yes. return, and the Lord, it, it translates from interest into... Uh, I, I for interest, but it could just as well be a Y for yield. If it's income, it's okay. Yes. But um, what I wanted to show that this hexagonal model can be made into a two-dimensional representation of both time and interest rates or yield or, pro or productivity. Not limitless productivity because that would mean that you heighten this interest rate and push up productivity until the sky, which cannot be done, of course. Right, that's all we have. Time for but we'll continue after the break. 15 minutes.